Uh, evening. Thank you, Steve, for reading uh, really one of the more uncomfortable dinner party scenes that you're likely to find. Uh, Luke loves a dinner party scene. He's got close to 20 um, scenes in his gospel where people are eating. Uh, you know, there are always places, aren't they, when you get to know the characters in attendance a bit more deeply. And we probably know that from our own experience, uh, don't we? Conversation can flow a bit more easily. A chance to ask some bigger questions and so on. And tonight's passage is, is just one of those occasions, the second of, of three lavish meals hosted by the Pharisees with Jesus in attendance. As far as following the usual kind of etiquette uh, for being a guest at dinner party goes, you know, bring a small gift for your host, arrive a little late, never early, um, compliment the chef and so on. Well, I suspect launching a sting verbal assault on your hosts and fellow guests is pretty high up there on the list of things not to do. So what's going on? Why is Jesus doing it? Especially when, at first glance, an invitation to dinner from a Pharisee might seem like a hospitable, welcoming thing um, for them to have done. A sign of respect to include Jesus in one of their formal afternoon meals. But actually, as we see... Underneath the invitation, there is a hidden agenda. It's actually a continuation of a pattern that we've been seeing in recent chapters, uh, where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are trying to find opportunities to test Jesus, to catch him out, to discredit his teaching. We get our first hint of that in verse 38, if you still have the passage open. And what this is, is turns out to be the catalyst for Jesus' speech that follows. Verse 38 The Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now again, pre-dinner expectations, you you wash your hands, don't you? It's what we all do, certainly what we tell our children to do. But this isn't washing for your hygiene reasons. This isn't a soap or water job. No, this is a ceremonial washing that the Pharisees was talking about. The kind of ceremonial washing that you see in the Old Testament, but it wasn't something that was for the everyday. It was something to be done only if you come into contact with something that made you unclean, and therefore as a way of being symbolically pure again. But the Pharisees had taken this, this law and made their own additional rules, their own versions of it, as a sign of piety, sign of their superiority over other Jews. And that surprise, that surprise isn't unexpected shock it's not a a, it's it's a surprise that betrays a sense of judgment you know the sort of thing that you might come across sometimes what car are you going to buy probably like a little Peugeot 208 something like that oh all right what's wrong with that oh nothing 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 no fine you know it's that kind of surprise with a little bit of judgment thrown in And Jesus sees right through what's going on with the Pharisee. And so Jesus begins what is quite an extraordinary series of rebukes and judgments on his hosts and peers. And he starts, you'll have noticed, with a general critique that picks up that image of cleansing which the Pharisee has introduced. It's there in verses 39 to 40. And the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? Outside, 
they're, they're trying to make themselves spotless, but inside they're full of greed and wickedness. I had a friend uh, at university, he was a lovely guy, and uh, he was the one who, whatever house we were in, he would, he would do the washing up. It was very kind of him. Uh, but sometimes we would watch him doing the washing up. And his technique was to pick up the bowl, the plate, assess it for where the dirty bits were, <laughs> give those a little rub, and then put it on the side to dry. And you'd, you'd sort of say to him, why, why are you doing that? And he'd say, well, you know, the rest of it's clean, isn't it? It's fine, fine to use. But it's not, is it? It's, you wouldn't want to eat from that bowl again, would you? And you need to clean the whole thing. And that's what Jesus is saying. And much more seriously, because he's talking about our hearts and our souls. God is concerned with the outside and the inside. Because, as Jesus said, he made them both. So to really be clean, the Pharisees have to look at the inside as well. And the way to do that is verse 41. Be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. That's the exact opposite, isn't it, of greed and wickedness. Being generous to the poor. That's the antidote to the problem. So a general critique that in some ways serves as an introduction to what follows. Because what we see now is a list of six woes. Now, woe is... A sort of a mixture of a condemnation, but also a warning. And here he addresses some more specific problems. We're going to look at them briefly in turn. We're going to work our way through them so we understand what Jesus is saying. And then afterwards we're going to consider some implications for us. But like if you want a headline summary of what Jesus is saying with all these, these six woes, it's this. You are hypocrites and hinderers. Hypocrites and hinderers. So keep those in mind as we go through. But come with me to the first woe, down in verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about their tithing. Now, tithing was uh, an important part of the Old Testament law. God's people were required to give a tenth um, of all their produce and their giving to support the ministers and the centres of worship that they were part of, and also to care for the foreigners and the poor amongst them. But the law doesn't go into such meticulous detail as this, speaking about garden herbs. But what they were doing was a right thing to do, and Jesus, you'll notice, didn't condemn them for doing that. But what Jesus does condemn is that they do those things, yet neglect the far more important practices of loving God and loving their neighbours. I think it follows on, doesn't it, from the bowl image, the inside and the outside. Both are needed. Tithing is meant to be a thankful offering, expressing love to God. But it becomes a means to being self-justified by what you do. And they'd allowed those minor, tiny little details, things that they could do, of which the scriptures were unclear on in such detail. Well, they'd allow those things to push aside what was absolutely clear in scriptures. Show justice to others, love God above all else. So you can be as religious as you like, but if your heart isn't directed outwards, then there's a problem. So woe to you Pharisees, Jesus says. We're in number two, verse 43, over the page. 
Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. It follows on, doesn't it? If you love others above yourself, if you don't love others above yourself, rather, then really you want others to love yourself, right? And the thing that stops us loving God more than we do is because we love ourselves more than we should. And Jesus calls them out on it. You're meant to be in the synagogues looking after others with your teaching and care. Yet you're, you're more concerned with how people see you and how important you are. So they sit in the best seats in the synagogues, the most visible, the most important. It's the royal box on centre court. It's the front bench in the Houses of Parliament. Best seats in the house. And the respectful greetings right in the marketplaces with maximum crowds around. The bows and the curtsies, the sirs, or your grace maybe. Check the cameras are rolling, do they get that? Quick interview with their fans on the red carpet. It's easy to understand what Jesus is criticising here, isn't it? It's that of pride, that quest for honour, self-importance. And look, we all feel that at times, don't we? We get it, that desire to be recognised, to be valued, respected. We get it. But Jesus says, no. Honour God first. And find your worth in being loved by him instead, which is deeper and richer by far. So, woe to you Pharisees. Woe number three, verse 44. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. And this is slightly trickier to understand. Now, unmarked graves, uh, touching a, a grave um, was one of those things in the Old Testament that made a person ceremonially unclean. So they would typically whitewash uh, a, a grave so that people could see it clearly and therefore avoid it so they wouldn't become unpure. And so an unmarked grave was a danger because it was a hidden source of contamination, impurity. So you see what Jesus is doing here? He is taking these Pharisees full circle. Remember, they started by doing deliberately sort of over-the-top washing rituals, thinking that that made them clean, when internally they weren't at all. Instead, Jesus says they are unintentionally bearers of death and uncleanliness themselves, leading others to become unclean with their unfaithful teaching and living. See, if people are looking at them, striving to be like them, then rather than being led towards God and life, they are being led away from him towards death. They're like asymptomatic COVID carriers going about their normal lives without realising they could be infecting people they come into contact with. And this is far more serious because it's people's eternal well-being that is at stake. So woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites and you hinderers. Pause in the conversation. Hairdryer is turned off for a moment. You can imagine an awkward silence, maybe an uncomfortable shifting in the seats, a little slow sip of wine, glances around the room. Pharisees no doubt quietly seething, aren't they, I imagine. But notice there's no response from them. 
There's no pushback, there's no defence. There's no, hang on a minute, Jesus, from them. And instead, it's one of the other guests, an expert of the law, pipes up. Now, these experts in the law, they were those who knew God's law better than most. They, they were the ones who wrote them out, and they were the ones who had authority to teach them. Now, perhaps this chap is, is the bravest one, or maybe he's just the most annoyed. don't know. But he's the one who pipes up in verse 45. And he says, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. So perhaps a chance for Jesus to take stock of what he's doing. Maybe change tack a little bit. Maybe even apologise. Not a bit of it. Woe to you, experts in the law. Let's work through these three, shall we? Verse 46. Woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Now, over the past few years, we've, we've all of us, haven't we, had an unprecedented amount of new and very strict rules given us to the, from the government by, you know, through, through the pandemic. And most people accepted them and they followed them because they understood why. But they were burdensome. They were costly, weren't they? I don't want to get into politics, other topics to avoid at no parties, but um, some people have certainly argued, haven't they, that some of these laws perhaps went a bit far and have done more damage than good at times when you look at the wider impact on people's health. But what has definitely been clear is that uh, people cannot stand it when those that make the rules don't stick to them, right? (laughs) People who might consider themselves exempt from such rules government parties, trips to Barnard's Castle, and so on. But it was going on in my neighbourhood as well. Integrity matters to us all, doesn't it? And that is what Jesus is criticising here. These experts in the law, they load people down with burdens they can hardly bear, and then do nothing to help them. Now this is a crucial point for the religious leaders to know. Their job is not simply to teach others how to live, but to help them do it, and to live it out themselves. Don't be hypocrites, Jesus is saying. Practice what you preach. So woe to you, experts in the law. And the second one, let's read from verse 47. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you built their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they'll kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. This is by far the longest of Jesus' woes. What he's saying is that they... They build tombs, monuments, as signs of reverence for the prophets of old, and yet it was their ancestors that killed them. Jesus is saying it's it's a sham what you're doing, because it's the same through every single generation there ever was. Prophets come, spokesmen of God, messengers, and yet they're ultimately rejected, persecuted, killed, before being falsely honoured by those who come after. It's always the same, right through the A to the Z of the prophets. And Jesus mentions a couple. He mentions Abel, of course, who suffered the first 
first murder in the Bible at the hand of his brother, who couldn't stand that God had favoured his sacrifice, one given as a first priority out of love, over Cain's sacrifice given out of duty. And Zechariah. Zechariah, the book of two chronicles, which was the last book in the Hebrew Bible in Jesus' day. At the end of two chronicles, we find the priest Zechariah stoned to death because King Joash and the Israelites didn't like his message from God, rebuking them for their wicked rebellion against the Lord. Sound familiar? Yeah. And notice that Jesus isn't talking about quick murders down some country lane in secret in the dead of night. No, a public spectacle in the temple itself, between the altar and the sanctuary, the holiest of places. Jesus exposes this hypocrisy. One commentator likens it to the American government. I think about Martin Luther King, how they treated him when he was alive, when he was speaking. And at the time, trying to undermine everything he was saying, and yet following his death, public holiday. That's what Jesus is talking about, that kind of hypocrisy. But Jesus knows that the pattern will continue with all the apostles who go after him, first respected and then rejected. Yet it's this current generation that will be held responsible for it all, because Jesus knows that, humanly speaking at least, they will be the ones who will kill Jesus himself on the cross. And we're going to think about that a little bit more later. Hypocrisy, Jesus is exposing. And look, the final way in there is in verse uh, 52. Let me read that again. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves, uh, excuse me, you you yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. This is perhaps the most sobering of them all, for the leaders who so prided themselves in being experts in the law, founts of all godly knowledge and wisdom. And yet Jesus says, you've taken away the key to knowledge. Isn't that shocking? They think that what they're telling people is bringing them to God, but actually it's doing the opposite. It's stopping people coming to God. And the lawyers themselves haven't even entered. It's a staggering condemnation, the final blow that is equal to the Pharisees being called unmarked graves. It is equally damaging to people's ability to be made right with God. Those people that should know the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures better than anyone, they're, they're mishandling it, they're misusing it for their own purposes. And the result is that people, the people they should be trying to bring to God, are being led astray. Three woes for the Pharisees, three woes for the experts in the law, hypocrites and hinderers. And we get their reaction, don't we, in those last couple of verses. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. There's no repentance, there's no humility, no self-reflection, just more anger and outrage and a desperation to keep discrediting or trying to discredit his authority. So that's how the Pharisees and the experts in the law responded. But what about us? How should we respond to such extraordinary um, words of Jesus? 
Now, I think as we think about this, I think there are two dangers with a passage like us, like this for us. One is that we, we go, oh, look, Pharisees, experts in the law, 2,000 years ago, this is nothing to do with us. These are religious leaders who should have known better. This isn't for us today. That's one danger. I think another danger is that we, we could go through them all and we could think, okay, every one of those, Jesus is saying to every one of us. Well, I don't think that's quite, I don't think that's quite right either. But clearly, there is lots here that is applicable to us. Because there are clearly some principles at work here that uh, Jesus wants us to think about because it's to do with our hearts as well, isn't it? So look, here's three implications for us to think about as we wrap up. The first is this. uh, Choose leaders wisely. Choose leaders wisely. Now, maybe that's easier said than done sometimes, but look, the the hypocrisy and and this kind of destruction that Jesus is exposing tonight, it is sadly one that we can see littered throughout the history of the church. And we haven't got time to reflect too much on that now. But even in the past few years, I'm sure you'll be aware of of some stories that have come out. Well-respected leaders whose lives didn't match up to what they preached. Or, Or leaders whose teaching was actually leading people astray. Integrity really matters. The, the motives of the heart matter. How we live matters. God is concerned with it all. So as far as we can, choose leaders wisely. So it starts right here at Christchurch. It shows the importance of, of getting to know your church leaders as much as you can, not just seeing them from a distance on a Sunday. And it's the same with those in your midweek groups. Or those who head up your children's Sunday club groups. Now, every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us will make mistakes. But are our leaders demonstrating lives of integrity? Are they people clearly trying to live lives of faith and repentance, service and love? Is that what we're seeing from our leaders, from us on the staff team? Is that what you're seeing? And is what we're being taught faithful to scripture? Not adding things in or taking things away. Again, that starts here at Christchurch or any other church you might find yourselves a part of in the future. But it goes for other things that we might be um, taking on board, the other kind of Christian input that we have. Now, whether that's books that we read, sermons you might listen to online, conferences you might go to, podcasts that you listen to, and so on. I remember when I was a student, there was a very popular uh, couple of books written by a pastor called Joshua Harris. Anarchist dating goodbye. All about how Christians should should do dating. Full of wisdom, rules, regulations. Rules that actually ended up being very damaging to lots of people. Now sadly, uh, Joshua Harris has fallen away from faith. But he did at least before that happened. He said that he got things wrong in those books. He said this, we have God's word. But then it's so easy to add all this other stuff to protect people, to control people, to make sure that you don't get anywhere near that place where you could go off course. And I think that's where the problems arise. So be wary of those who impose additional rules, load people with with burdens. It can be really hard to spot at times because following Christ is costly. It does require obedience to God's word. It does require 
change being led by the Spirit and not our own desires. So it's right for us to be being taught what living for Christ looks like. And, and all this, every generation, every, every context, people will write extremely helpful wisdom on what it looks like for us today to live for Jesus. So we, we've got to do our best. We've got to do our best to discern between teaching that grows faith rather than hinders it. Now everyone will get things wrong, but what is the prevailing wind of what you're being taught and what you're seeing in your leaders? Are they blowing you towards Christ and grace in the gospel? Or are they blowing you away from him to legalism, to religion? To choose leaders wisely, that's the first implication I think that we see. The second is this, check under the hood. Check under the hood, do some self-reflection. Now, even though Jesus is speaking some very tailored rebukes to a particular group of people, there are clearly underlying issues of the heart with dangers that we all face. All of us, I think, can be tempted to look on our externals over our internals, can't we? You know, as long as I'm keeping up the routines, going to church, reading the Bible, saying our prayers, giving away some of my paycheck to church and charities, making sure I'm seen to be at stuff, all those sorts of things, well, we can think we're all right. But we need to check where our heart is in all of those good and right deeds. The warning here is against hypocrisy, isn't it? Where our insides not matching our outsides. And that message is one that Jesus and the apostles say all throughout the New Testament. Now, we hate it, don't we, when we see a lack of integrity in others, especially those in authority. But we would just be just as foolish as the Pharisees if we weren't wise to, to that danger in our own lives too. So in these critiques, Jesus shows principles that God expects from all of his people. Generosity to the poor rather than selfish greed. Seeking justice, not being indifferent to the mistreatment of others. Being humble rather than proud. Actively trying to help our brothers and sisters grow in godliness. And above all, having a genuine, heartfelt love for God, rather than a cold, works-based faith. So how are we faring in those areas? Were there any points as we were going through those woes when we felt our consciences notably pricked? Well, if there were, then they'd be good places to reflect on and pray about further. Because God wants all of us, our hearts and our minds and our souls, everything, to be driven by love for him. So choose leaders wisely, check under the hood, and finally, cherish Jesus. Cherish Jesus. It is a remarkable thing that Jesus did, time and time again, putting himself in the firing line of his opponents. Now, he didn't speak to them in a way like this to, to wind them up, though it did, or to insult them, though they were. And he did it to warn them of the judgment they were facing, to lovingly try to turn them from the error of their ways. And he spoke to them, not as their equals, but as the son of God, desperate for them to recognize his authority over them. And all the while he was speaking these words of rebuke, he would also speak words of hope and grace. And all the while he was teaching, he would demonstrate a life that perfectly embodied what it means to love God and to love your neighbor. There's no trace of hypocrisy with Jesus. Inside and outside, spotlessly clean with him.
And remember again, that longest of the woes, 49 to 51, the warning that this generation would be the one who'd be held accountable for all the blood spills of God's prophets. Well, Jesus knows why this is, because he knows it reaches its climax in himself. The opposers would get their wish and they would catch Jesus out. Not really, of course, because Jesus never said anything that wasn't true. But enough to convince the Roman authorities and the Jewish rulers to put him to death on a cross. Not down a country lane at the dead of night, but in the middle of the day on a hill where everyone could see it happening. Jesus knew that is where he was heading. What following this path of teaching would lead to, and he did it anyway. He did it anyway out of love for them and for us. Even saying, as he was crucified, of these leaders, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Of course, that wasn't the end of the story. You'll find no two more grave, whitewashed or otherwise, for Jesus. The risen and ascended Jesus offers true entry to the kingdom. He holds the true keys to knowledge. He is the wisdom of God. So all those who come to him humbly in faith and repentance, well, that's where you find hope and grace and love and forgiveness. So choose leaders wisely. Check under the hood. And most importantly, cherish Jesus for all that he did and said. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to give you uh, a moment to reflect and maybe to pray on your own. And then Rachel's going to come and lead us towards the end of the service.